The Rub of the Green The Quiet Men of England, Number 4 Professor Sir Daniel Blint In which we do the maths. It was G.K. Chesterton who remarked of your Englishman, and I quote loosely but accurately, that when people are in exceedingly high spirits, really wild with freedom and invention, they always must, and always do, create institutions. Such an institution, created out of the giddiness of freedom and the maternal necessities of invention, was that unsullied diadem of a village, Wesley Turpin. Our hero this week was a man born out of the exactitude of mathematics, so we shall not stay upon our adjectival way, and instead press our damp noses upon the frosted glass of village life, and this one character in particular. Under a dark tarpaulin of fog, the crenellated gables and roofs of the village lay unperturbed. All was hushed and silent save for the staccato crunch of gravel on the drive that led to the residence of one Professor Sir Daniel Dynamite Dan Blint. Clad all in sepulchral white, Professor Blint trod purposefully towards the road. A scion of the Blints of Bedfordshire, a storied family with an ignominious past too long-winded to repeat here, he had attended a very minor public school and had gone up to Christ Church as a fledgling economist. Graduating with a double first in botany, he had been welcomed to Bretton Woods with open arms and had, as a man over six foot, literally rubbed shoulders with Galbraith. He had taken tea with Keynes. Milton Friedman loitered nonchalantly in his Rolodex. His infamous and blasphemous distillation of Marxian dialecticus, as it related to supply-side economics, had won him both a Nobel Prize for economics and the moniker Dynamite Dan. The royalties from the inimitable tome that had made him infamous in the Borsa, a brief excoration on French actuality from Descartes to Destin, had afforded him the luxury of having his newly designed and gleaming beacon of future prosperity, his very house, helicoptered into Wesley Turpin by a brace of enormous Sikorskys. As a dwelling in Wesley Turpin, it was unique. It was a genuine Max Boye installation. Now, brutalism, out of vitriol, ignorance, and design, was anathema in Wesley Turpin, as far as planning permission was concerned. But such was the esteem in which the august professor was held that this grey concrete oblong with its razored webs of glass was not only permitted, but brown signposted, flagged, and village broadsheet delineated as a place of considerable interest. Its obtuse and rounded corners caught neither sun nor rain, and the green cracked glass that ran the length of both longitudinal sides of the home were fly-blown and pockmarked by the detritus of pebble-dash that was cast down by the wind from the council estate. It had a vague sense of place, and a dissolute way of inhabiting it. Max Boy, 
a genial if underwhelming acolyte of the Bauhaus movement, was not blessed with creativity. He was not blessed with draftsmanship. He was blessed with neither insight nor vision, nor even a modicum of talent. He'd cribbed from the best when he could, and when he couldn't, simply nicked what he could. And thus it was that Loblong had come into being. Max Boy, neophyte and dimwit that he was, had been enthusiastically burgling Le Corbusier one night, when, in his myopic adrenal excitement, he had stumbled against the drawing-board and, on falling, had cursed and torn a corner from the draught pinned thereon. Assuming that what he had was actually a finished piece, and in his haste not noting the tears, rips, and red-inked phrase ne pas utiliser, he had fabricated Loblong here in Wesley Turpin. To the architectural connoscenti, who, and granted, and Wesley Turpin were confined to the incorrigible Milton Constable and the idiot child of Aston Tyrrit, it produced an involuntary retching sensation when inadvertently espied. Melton Constable had long since determined a path, when out on his morning constitutional, that avoided that part of the village entirely. The boy, diagnosed with a spastic eating disorder that rendered him pencil-thin and perpetually furious. The august professor devoted his time to lawn bowls, his abiding private passion. He happened also to be really rather good at it. That Professor Sir Daniel Blent was a natural at Lawn Bowles came as little surprise to anyone with a passing knowledge of the mathematical world. Whereas you and I might see the game in the dimensions and reference points of a few ill-advised afternoons watching the BBC and David Bryan tugging at his pipe, the Professor saw an endless arcade of diaphantine equations, integers exploding and reforming in Euclidean Perfection, the bias of the bowls as a cut and thrust of vector dynamics that nagged at his pineal gland in busy excitement. The Lawn Bowls Club of the village was a source of curious pride among the stuff shirts of Wesley Turpin, and a popular spectator sport to the youth and young manhood of the village, including, and sometimes limited to, the idiot child of Aston Tirrett who would himself launch magnesium flares and laboriously unfurl gigantic banners declaiming his love for the club, all the while gurning in rictus of peptic pain. Professor Blent loomed at the club gates. Seeing his glabrous foredome, with its shock of grey and nicotine-stained hair standing like a blasted coppice behind, peering over the ironmongery, Mabel Avensis, the club's secretary, bustled urgently with lock and chain. Professor Blend took his ease in the clubhouse, and loosely fondled his balls in their ancient leather sack. He sat back, exhaling deeply and waiting for his teammates in the opposition, and let his mind wander through the viaducts of algebraic variables that was his particular wont. On this particular day his mind had returned to the intractability of the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture. Such are the concerns that exercise the brains of Nobel laureates. After a while, tossing the matter back and forth between the old lug holes, his algebraic study was interrupted by the distinctive foot-foot of the opposition gaining the clubhouse. 
The team from Navia Stokes decamped from a battered van a few short minutes later, and began whirling their arms about in gay abandon, limbering up and applying the necessary lubrication, and disappeared into the clubhouse to don the white linen. By the time the small clock atop the clubhouse had struck ten, the teams were assembled at one end of the impeccable lawn. The game began, and, as the fog lifted, the spindly shapes of long white men cast against a verdant tapestry began to emerge. Soon woods began to curve and arc from one end to the other, and the scoreboard trembled with each rising score. And the opposition were no walkover, and both their stars, Levin and Cook, were on sparkling form and soon raced ahead. It all went to the declining end and the final set. The Wesley Turpin team looked bereft of ideas, and to a man turned to their de facto leader, Professor Blent. But the professor was lost in a dreamlike trance. He stood with feet of clay, mouth agape, eyes fixed upon the greensward, and the litter of woods gathered at the far end. Far above, a bright white flare exploded. Spectators in years to come would recall how, since the first wood had been delivered in this game, Professor Blent had been curiously distracted by the direction described by the various parabolae of the woods sent down by both Levin and Cook. Dynamite Dan was always able to roll his woods in the exact elliptical curves required to see off the best opposition the surrounding villages could muster. At this especial juncture, Professor Blent had felt that peculiar rising sensation of exultation as the woods in this game had served perfectly to illustrate a solution to the aforementioned conjecture. The parabola had described the various ellipses to perfection, and the bias of the woods at this end had been rolled with particular exactitude. He had a solution on the tip of his tongue, but there was one piece missing. He was woken from his reverie by the urgent insistent tugging at his elbow of his teammate, Mabel Avensis. Why, Professor, it's all set up for the win. Your turn. We just need one of your famous rockets and we'll have them beat. Straight delivery was the answer, as Mabel knew all too well, but it was the furthest thing from his mind. He considered the lie of the land, and the solution to the puzzle danced before his eyes. A pull to the left, and a hook at the end, and the solution would reveal itself. That was not the delivery required, though. To win the game? To solve the problem? There could be just one answer to anyone who is in any way familiar with Wesley Turpin. The wood was delivered swift and true, and the game won. Levin and Cook exchanged a knowing, crestfallen look, and heartily congratulated the professor. He smiled at their warm congratulations and took his leave. That's easy, eh? remarked the pair with a jaunty shrug. Some problems are easy to solve, but remain impossible to check. I guess we'll never know. The Quiet Men of England is a very broad and very shallow production. 
written by Brian Painting, performed by Charlie Moriarty, with original music recorded and played by Peter Vincent Ridden.